Hello, good evening and welcome to Seascapes. Tonight we are on board traditional Galway hookers at the Galway Docklands Festival and we hear about the sailing trawlers of Ringsend and the huge industry which surrounded them. The three-day inaugural Galway Docklands Festival took place last weekend and it proved to be a busy few days. Among the many events were a boat launch, a Galway hooker boat rigging display, a chance to visit Macduoc, boat building and sea-themed displays. Mike McCartney went to the port of Galway where first he spoke to Colette Fury from the Galway Hooker Sailing Club. Boy Hooker Sailing Club has set up Galway Docklands Festival and we're running it this weekend. It's in association with Galway Bay Boat Tours and Galway Bay Seafoods. So we're just basing ourselves down around the Docklands and just exposing everyone and telling everyone about the area and getting Galway people out and about and down to the area. Now your motto here seems to be restoration, sailing, education and the community. Yeah, they're the four pillars of the club. So restoration will be a massive part of the club. We don't really build new boats. We take old boats and restore them. We're made up of a crew of about 100, 110 uh, crew members, all volunteers. And one of the biggest projects that we did, it went over two years and we just launched it last October, was Loving. And that was a full restoration of a 98-year-old uh, glow chug that the crew restored under the guidance of our boat builder, uh, Colleen Hernan, and his sons. And the rest of the crew then just took part as well. And, uh, yeah, did all the sanding and painting and varnishing and, and everything. So, yeah, it was a huge project. So we do a lot of sail training. Uh, education, you can probably hear the kids here behind me. So we set up a sea school with... Uh, I'm a primary school teacher myself, and I teach in Skullverija and Shantala. So the kids are here behind us today to launch the festival. So it's a project with uh, the local primary schools to get them involved in the sea, teach them about boats, the marine industry, um, and expose them to all the opportunities within, within the industry. And the Galway Hookers itself is an iconic symbol of Galway. So that's, uh, you know, part of the community. And we always involve the community. Like, it's a huge entity inside the, in the community. So to be involved with everyone. My name is Kieran Oliver. Yeah, I'm the Commodore of Galway Hooker Sailing Club and you're welcome to our little uh, Galway Docklands Festival here. Just behind us here, I'm just uh, demonstrating or showing off our a support vessel. Uh, this is a six-metre Tornado rib with a 100-horsepower engine on it and she was uh, funded by uh, the Sports Capital, National Sports Capital Grant and the National Lottery Fund or whatever. So we're delighted. We just took delivery of it last week. She was ordered about a year ago and uh, this will be used to support uh, the vessels, the fleet of hookers when they're on the water and also our sea school projects and, and getting kids involved and on the water and teaching safety and navigation and various other bits and pieces you know but it's one of the one of the elements of the of the festival just to just to showcase what we do here on a regular basis all year round and you say supporting the the vessels out there supporting the Galway hookers can you tell us a little bit more about that? These traditional boats, Galway hookers, the majority of them don't have engines and all our fleet have no engines. Sometimes you can put, you can put outboard engines on them for, for safety or whatever, but we tend not to. We like to kind of keep it traditional. They're sailing boats. They're not used for work anymore, so it's leisure and pleasure and teaching kids and, and passing the skills on to the next generation. So it's kind of important to have a safety or a support vessel next in the event of anything happening and even just transferring people from one boat to the next boat from the quay because the boats will be sailing might be sailing out the bay 
day and we just we get people to arrive our crew members or whatever arrive at the docks or at the pier and we'd, we'd get two or three on board and change crews and that kind of stuff it looks to me very much like a lifeboat it's orange in colour there are two seats on it tell us a little bit more about the makeup of it I suppose for the lay person maybe yeah, it could be class like it looks like a lifeboat yes lifeboats in general they come in all sizes of classes and this is a rib a rigid inflatable boat it's a very versatile boat I suppose uh, in just in its sea keeping ability manoeuvrable easy to recover somebody over the side in the event of somebody falling or if you were you know and these are used in clubs and uh, organisations around the world do you know for this purpose do you know what I mean like say, small sailing clubs and small dinghies kids and, and adults would go to learning how to, how to sail in four or five metre little sailing boats and there would always be a support boat similar to this uh, alongside you know what I mean again for the safety aspect so it does have that design or that look but we spec it ourselves uh, we decided to go with, it, with the, well, the orange a tornado a good brand reputable brand and also we've got a nice kind of well semi-high performance 100 horsepower Yamaha engine on the back which is just again we need this kind of power our operational our area of operation we might call it we're on Galway Bay our home port would be classes the port of Galway uh, uh, are the Clada right and uh, sometimes we can't sail up the Clada because the current and the wind direction isn't in the right you know the right the right place or whatever so so we need to tow the boats up so again that's the, one of the purposes again of the boat it's an Irish word if something is Corroch in Irish it's unsteady if you say Tosha Corroch it's unsteady so I can see the boat there where it would rock back and forth there in the water and this boat here I built it about 15 20 years ago as a project at home at the back of the house. Boat builder Colleen Hernan speaking to a group of students from the local schools. Talk to me about Trasnanadunta. Well, Trasnanadunta was a, a project here of rebuilding uh, 1925 Glotsjog, and that's what Trasnanadunta, when it was launched, uh, some club members decided to call it Trasnanadunta. And uh, it was a, a 23 foot uh, well, it was built as a border as we call them, but converted to sailing in the in the eighties. And it, before that, it was used for uh, towing and pulling seaweed, an inboard engine in it, and stuff like that. Used with oars, all that type of work. And then we decided to in this place here to set up a workshop here and rebuild it. And we thought we were going to save a good deal of the old boat, but it transpired that all of it had to be rebuilt. But I like the idea of of, of preservation. Of, of the old boats. Uh, yes, it's, you can build a new boat, your own ideas, but I think it'll take them years to get the character that the older boats have because they came from different boat builders like Casey's, Clarty's and Moinish, Clarty's and Inishnee and Roundstone, O'Donnell's, Rainey's and Galway, Brandley's and South Galway, Flaherty's and from Mullen. So there was, you know, and you, you'd always know the different type of boat builders by their style of boat and how they turned them out. And so I like the idea of, uh, I think our motto should be restoration and preservation and I think we should follow that. Modern-day boat builders tend to... They don't want the hassle of rebuilding. It's hard going because it's double work. You're taking off an old piece, an old rib, and you're placing it with a new one. So you're going backwards and you're going forward and you're going backwards. Uh, but eventually you get there. But I think it's important, the preservation thing. New boats are straightforward. You're going forward the whole time. There is no reverse gear in, in building a, a new boat. So I like the whole idea of preserving the older boats. They're getting scarce because a number of years ago, Udras uh, Nagelta had a boat building scheme, boat training scheme. And they also had grants for uh, rebuilding boats. It was supposed to be. 
but by and large, a number of very old boats got chopped up because the idea was that people wanted a maybe a bigger boat, of course a faster boat, everybody wants a fast boat, nobody wants to be uh, the last on the fleet. So the, the, the older boats, uh, they were uh, chainsawed and new boats were built. And fine, the new boats are fine, there's a place for the new boats, but I don't think they should be chopping up the old boats. They are history, they are heritage, it should be really preserved. And with timber boats, you're all the time repairing. Uh, you, you, when, when you get a soft spot or a rotten spot on the boat, you're going to have to remove that and replace it straight away because it'll, the rot will keep travelling. It's like any infection it would, or disease, it will travel through the boat if you don't remove it. Across the way in the port of Galway, down at the docks, we meet Ben McDonough on board a boat that is attracting a lot of attention. This boat is the Macduch. She's the biggest of the Galway hookers. She's 15, I think, 15 metres long. Which is, hence, we have a different rig. We have two masts. The normal hooker has one mast. Uh, the history of it, she was built back in Cairn about the middle 70s by a fellow called Colonel Cairns, who's no longer with us, who was a renowned traditional boat builder. Now, she's, she's not owned by me. She's owned by a chap called Mike Brogan. She's done a lot of long trips but we do long trip every summer, pre-COVID, of course. Do you want permission to come on board? Of course, come on. Let's go down. We do a lot of long passages on this one. Uh, we have done, as I said, pre-COVID. This is our galley area, where we cook and eat. And up front, we have a cabin space for four people. And this one here, I use myself. This is our navigation station, where all our clever bits are done. And uh, she's quite a comfortable boat, she, you know. The furthest trip I've done on her was the Faroe Islands. Uh, so she's a good seaboat, good safe seaboat. But damn, COVID has put a stop to her, her long hauls. Like I said earlier on, she's slightly different than the normal hooker. She's catch rigged, hence she's got two masts. The fact that she's so big, the old style rig was terrible to handle. It was massive. So we decided when we do for, for long passages, if we cut it out, this is not, it's not unusual in the old days uh, when the boats got to a certain size, but in the second, second mast, makes it much safer, much easier to handle. As I said, she's catch rigged, so we have a main mast, we have a mizzen mast, and two headsails. We used to do a lot of night travelling, so it's much safer. You know, you could decide, I can have every sail up, I can two sails up, no sail up even. So it's she's much safer to handle, more comfortable to handle. The old rule on building hookers was. Decided on the length of the keel. The old shipwrights would not cut a keel. So if you wanted a boat and he had a keel, say 35 foot, that, that, that's your foundation. So he built off that. So whatever finished up at the top, that's the length of boat you wound up with. So the man building this one had a big, fine lump of timber for a keel. So he said, I'm not cutting that, I'm wasting it. So hence you wind up. She, like I said, she's the biggest of the whole fleet. She walks out, I think, about 15 metres. Normally done about 12 metres, the, the biggest of them. And she, she's been modified down below mainly for, for, for travel uh, and comfort, of course. So you mentioned the Faroe Islands, but this boat has also been to Norway. Yeah, she'd been to the southern islands, the islands on the south coast of Norway, back in, I think it was the 90s. I wasn't on her at the time. She's made a name for herself in travel. She's been to France. She's The last trip we did, we did on a pre-COVID was to Iona in the Hebrides. And that was Ben McDonough speaking to Mike McCartney. And I've sailed on MacDoo myself, and she's really an extraordinary boat. Maritime historian Cormac Louth has just published a book entitled Ringsend Sailing Trawlers. It's a history of the wooden sailing fishing boats which operated out of that part of Dublin for more than a hundred years. Most of those ships came from the south of England in the early part of the 19th century. And Cormac told me how that came about. 
The first of them arrived in 1819 and they came to Dublin at the behest of a fishery company that was started up by a group of enterprising gentlemen. It was called the Dublin Fishery Company. They bought initially seven boats and had one built in Dublin and they were very large boats by comparison to those that existed uh, in Dublin at the time and on the east coast generally. They were Brixham trawlers, on average about 40 tonnes at the time and about 60 feet long and they were extremely seaworthy and they could fish in deeper water than the local boats were able to operate in and consequently they got a much better quality of fish and in greater quantities. What were they catching? Well they would have been largely catching flatfish like uh, place and brill and turbot but of a much larger size perhaps than uh, what was being caught locally and was subsequently a great demand for quality fish like that of a very large size. Uh, so to to catch those <coughs> under sail, they just effectively they're dragging the bottom under sail. Yeah, they, they used a beam trawl. In actual fact, the local boats used beam trawls also, but they were much smaller. What was Ringsend like when they arrived there? It was eighteen nineteen. Well, Ringsend was then as now a very unique sort of place. It was even then a noted centre for the building of boats. It had grown up and existed in almost total isolation to the rest of the city and it was a very maritime orientated place. A great deal of fishing went on from there. Uh, there was a great deal of boat building done there over the years. Not very far from us here in Donnybrook, it's just down the road, you have a list of the boat builders there which runs for about two or three pages. Yes, I suppose. Oh, oh, well, boat building had been going on there for several centuries before the Brixham Trawlers arrived. And every, there were a great many boats built there. I have records of schooners, rigs and even war galleys being built there. But it was also a noted place for the building of yachts and a local type of fishing vessels such as wherries and luggers. Uh, it subsequently became a place for building the Brixham style trawlers because the style of fishing very quickly caught on. Uh, in Ringsend when people realised that this was the way forward and a great many of the locals either went to Brixham to buy boats or had them built in Ringsend. The way forward being just the bigger boat. Yes, indeed, and the type of trawling that they did. They were equipped with mechanical winches, the Brixham boats. They were operated by hand. Later ones uh, had little steam capstans on them. As the century progressed, uh, some of them got little steam capstans to just put to haul, haul in up the, the sails or to haul in the net. Okay. Now the catches they were landing, they land, landed them down there in Ringsend. What happened then? Well, they would have been brought to the Dublin market by horse and cart. They would have been landed, perhaps, uh, using these what they call smack boats. Each of the boats was equipped with a smack boat. It was a large rowing boat with deep draft and high sides that they used to land the catch uh, using wicker, wicker baskets. Okay. And it was transported to the Dublin market from there. The Dublin market was, was a very thriving place located in Pill Lane, which is now Chancery Street behind the four courts in Dublin. How many people were, were employed on these trawlers and were, were they all from the UK? Were they all English, should I say? Initially they were, yeah. A great many people followed them over, not only uh, to join the Dublin Fishery Company, but to come over when they heard about how, how good the fishing was off the east coast uh, of Ireland. And a great many f more families from Brixham subsequently came over, brought their boats, the crews on these sailing trawlers throughout the whole of the century that they existed in, in Ringsend from 1819 until 1919 when they just dwindled away after the First World War remained the same 
Uh, they were crewed by three men and a boy. How would you handle a net, the, the size of the net they were using with just three people? Now, this was part of the secret of the success of the Brixham-style trawlers because the local boats used to haul everything by hand. They did the mechanical winches on board and the great big wooden beam which held the net was hauled up using the winch until it was gotten on board and lashed alongside the vessel and then the rest of the net would simply be hauled in by hand until you came to what was known as the cod end. That was the bag end of the net in which all the fish were, which was hauled aboard with a, a tackle and spilled out on the deck. Mm. So you, that was doable with three people? Yeah, three men and a boy. <laughs> now, a boy could have been anything from 14 <laughs> up to 21 at the time, and I don't think you would have remained a boy for too long in that business. It probably had to do with the rate of pay. Oh, indeed. Now, the, the rate of pay was very unusual. And in fact, it existed on fishing boats up till relatively recently. The catch, uh, the proceeds of the, the share of the catch was decided upon a share basis. There were eight shares. The owner of the boat got four shares. The captain got a share and a half. The two hands got a share each and the boy got a half share. So as a result of that, if you didn't catch any fish, you didn't get any money. Was it a good living? I'd say it was a fairly good living, all right. But of course, it was dependent upon a lot of things. It depended upon the, the weather, principally. The tides, they, fish, they, they generally tend to fish with the tide. But in actual fact, they were known to keep the sea in practically all weathers. They reckon to have been some of the most seaworthy vessels of their size uh, that were ever built. What made them seaworthy? Uh, the sheer design of them. They were very large, deep. deep deep draft, and in general terms, very seaworthy. And they were noted for uh, going out sometimes when all other vessels would be coming in, and they could keep the sea in most weather conditions. Where did they fish? Was it along the banks? Um, we know that there's a coddling bank, all these sand banks which run right down the east coast of Ireland. Yes, indeed. But the, the principal area that they fished in was defined by a large triangle uh, from around Brayhead up to Ardglass and across to the Calf of Man in that triangle there. Okay. And there are great descriptions of all of the different areas in which the sailing trawlers fished uh, for different times of the year and from different type, for different types of catches. There were other ancillary industries involved uh, with fishing, such as net making, boat building, making ropes and twine, and sail making. And all of that was done locally. So all of that gave employment. The decline came in the early part of the 20th century. What happened? I'd say the decline was there for two reasons. First of all, certification was introduced. And the requirements for, uh, for fishing on vessels like that uh, wound up as uh, skippers and mates. That's the first hand were required to have certificates. In order to get those, they had to sit for an exam, an oral and a written exam. The fishermen weren't always available to do the written exam, and indeed some of them were actually illiterate and had to drop down uh, in rank, as it were, aboard the fishing boats. Besides that, World War I came along? Yeah. Now, the principal reason for the decline, though, was the incursion of motorised trawling and steam trawling particularly. And a great many people who would have gravitated uh, towards trawling on their sail actually went trawling on their steam because it would have given them a much more guaranteed share of the catch. Yeah. A lot of those people moved into building yachts. Yeah, well, it was always a great centre throughout the whole of the 19th century for yacht building. And one of the highlights of the regattas in Dublin Way was the sailing trawler race. And practically all of the sailing trawlers from Ringsend 
and many that uh, operated out of Dunleary or Kingstown uh, competed in these. And as I said, they were some of the most popular events. Indeed, the prizes uh, that were put up by the race committees were quite substantial. I've seen figures of up to 40 sovereigns for the winner. Your book by Cormac Louth is Ringsend Sailing Chores with some history of boat building in Ringsend, published by Peggy Bone Press and sponsored by the Dublin Port Company. Where can we get it? By virtue of the uh, escalating production costs, it hasn't really been possible to get into the shops. So it's presently selling on eBay. Uh, on the rings and trawlers, it'd be very easy to find, or I can be contacted personally, Cormac F. Loud 69 at gmail.com. That's C O R M A C F L O W T H 69 at gmail.com. And I'll work out some way of getting the book to anyone who's interested in buying a copy. Thanks to Cormac Loud for coming in, and there's a link to Cormac on our website. Now, in their latter days, all of those trawlers, like every modern ship, would have had a funny circular mark on their waterline. That's called the Plimsoll Line, and Norman Freeman tells us now how that line originated. In the 19th century, the term coffin ship came into usage in the English-speaking world. Especially in Ireland, it referred to those unseaworthy and overcrowded ships carrying Irish emigrants fleeing to North America from the Great Famine. Several went down in mid-ocean with the loss of all on board. In Britain, the term coffin ship was applied to those decrepit vessels that had been heavily insured by their unscrupulous owners. They were worth more if they went down than if they stayed afloat. Invariably, they were overloaded. Of course, the overloading of vessels of all kinds was nothing new. It is recorded in the Kingdom of Crete in the year 2500 BC that measures to counter overloading were introduced. In the Middle Ages, the Venetian Republic and the city of Genoa and the Hanseatic League all required ships to load to a safe level. In Venice, the safe load position was indicated by a cross on the waterline of the ship, while in Genoa it was three horizontal lines. In the 19th century, Britain had become the leading international trading company because of its worldwide colonies. There were big, powerful shipping companies and hundreds of ships of all kinds. Unfortunately, overloading was commonplace. Some ships went down because of it. It was in the 1870s that a Member of Parliament, Samuel Plimsoll, began a campaign for the introduction of a safe load regime for ships. An impressive man with a flourishing beard and moustache, this radical politician had once known poverty. He was familiar with the Victorian underworld of the downtrodden. He had sympathy for the plight of badly paid sailors, whose lives were put at risk by uncaring ship owners. In 1872, he published a book called Our Seamen. It called for greater measures to protect seafarers from exploitation and the dangers of overloading. The book caused a stir. It resulted in the government introducing a bill in the House of Commons in 1875. However, the bill was vigorously opposed by some members of Parliament. They came from wealthy shipowning families or had close links with some of the big shipping companies. As a result, the Prime Minister, Benjamin Disraeli, dropped the bill. Plimsoll was outraged. During an angry debate, he called his opponents villains. Then, in an unusual breach of parliamentary behaviour, 
he shook his fist in the Speaker's face. For this, he was excluded from the House of Commons for some time. Eventually, he had to apologise. But the dramatic row attracted such public attention that the government was eventually forced to pass a bill. This required every individual ship to carry a mark that indicated the safe level to which it could be loaded. Equally important, stringent powers of inspection were given to the Board of Trade to ensure that this procedure was carried out. The safe load indicator became known as the Plimsoll Line. The original mark was the circle with the horizontal line through it. Additional marks have been added to indicate the slightly different loading levels between fresh or salt water or between tropic or cold seas. It was in the year 1930 that there was an international agreement for universal standardisation of load line marks and regulations. Samuel Plimson is remembered by a monument on the Victoria Embankment in London. It overlooks that stretch of the River Thames where ships were once loaded and sometimes overloaded many years before. He's also remembered by that line on every ship. Norman Freeman. And just before we go, a reminder that the Ernest Shackleton Auto School is on in Athai this weekend. You can get information from the Shackleton Museum. That's it for Seascapes for this week. We're back at the same time next Friday. Everything on the programme's podcast is on our website, rte.ie slash seascapes. If you want to contact me or the programme, the email is seascapes at rte.ie. If you're anywhere on or near the water over the next week, stay safe. And Seascapes was presented and produced by Fergal Keane.